you are now entering the Podglomerate. I distinctly remember this one time I was, uh, you know, I was in our nice little family car and I turned to my right and there was a girl literally the same age as me, you know, selling, you know, chocolates um, with an old lady right behind her. And that was the point where my grandma, who was sitting next to me, puts her hand on my hand and basically proceeds to tell me how lucky I am and that I should never take anything for granted because, you know, if circumstances were different or if God deemed it so, right, if our, if our blessings did not flow from him the way they had flowed, then that could have been me, that little girl on the other side of the window. So I do appreciate that about my family is that, you know, even though I went to a really, really good school, even though we lived in relative comfort, I was never ma- made to forget that there were people who suffered around us. And then there was the time that I was taken out of my school um, to, form, to form what was essentially going to become a human shield against a bunch of men with machetes. So that story. <laughs> this is Status, the show about how immigration impacts the people we love. Today's episode is the season finale of Status. And I want to thank you for being here with me over the last six months. I'm going to be honest with you. When I posted Nicer Place to Be, the story of Kate and Nathan... I didn't know that I'd have 10 episodes released six months later. I sure didn't know how many incredible stories I would hear in interviews, that I'd end up at the White House talking to strangers about their passion for immigrants, or that Status would get the chance to join the podglomerate. It's been a wild ride. And before we jump into this last episode of Season 1, I have a request. Go to statuspodcast.com, I put a link in the show notes for you, and look at the second card, the one that says, Keep Up With Status. Put your email address in that box and click subscribe. This will sign you up for the Status Newsletter. If you subscribe, you'll be the very first to know when Status is coming back for Season 2. You won't want to miss out. Okay, so, last week we heard from Michael and Daniel about what it was like being gay men across four different cultures. You don't need to have heard that episode to understand this one. I'll fill you in on the details that you need to know. Michael was born in the Philippines, grew up in Sydney, Australia, and moved to the U.S. later on. Daniel was born in Peru and moved to the States at the age of 19. The two of them met in the mid-2000s and fell in love, partially based on something their home countries had in common. Dictatorship. That's what today's episode is about. What growing up in a country ruled by a dictator did to the relationship between two immigrants to the U.S., and how it became the lens through which they see the world. It was actually one of the things that Daniel and I bonded through, um very early on and we continued to bond through our entire relationship was the fact that we were both children of dictatorships <laughs> yeah, that and I, remember, I still remember like you know in the beginning part of our relationships we'll kind of do what we call the poverty off or the or the, the oppressor the dictatorship the oppressor off it's like yeah well you had car bombs you know but we had bread lines yeah oh, <laughs> I had to do my homework by candlelight because the terrorists blew up the electric lines yeah, well, at least you had electric lines, you know, <laughs> at, at all. You know, I mean, we had to subsist through, you know, candlelight, you know, throughout. I mean, our traffic lights were candlelights. You know, I mean, like it was, I mean, we would, would basically just go back and forth about how much, how much more each other suffered in each other's banana republics. And the funny thing is, is, you know, years and years and years later, when our parents would meet and start bonding, that's actually what they used to bond with each other. I mean, there was this one time where, you know, I think we were on a road trip down to, uh, to Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, and Daniel and I were seated in the back seat. My parents were in the middle in a van, and then uh, Daniel's parents were in the front. 
And at some point, I distinctly remember like my parents saying, like, oh, in the Philippines, you know, if we really had a tough time. I mean, the Marcos regime, the dictatorship did this, this, and this, and it was really horrible. We didn't have running water, we would, we would have cl- um, closures, etc. And then his parents were like, well, at least you had water. <laughs> we lived in a desert. <laughs> we had rationing cards and we had to pretend that the family didn't know each other so we would get more sugar and more milk rations so I could feed my children. And yeah, it was, it was actually well, at least your milk wasn't poisoned. <laughs> For me, I think what also helped me, you know, increasingly in the early stages look at Daniel as someone who I felt I could make a life out of was sort of like that shared experience of of struggle. Because I think, you know, having a childhood and that sort of experience, it molds you a certain way. It, It molds you differently. It makes you, I think, appreciate things a little bit differently. It gives you a certain perspective about the meaning of family, the meaning of culture, the meaning of freedom, right? And being now in a country where, you know, we have these amazing rights and, and privileges, it becomes that much more palpable, I think, for Daniel and I, knowing that our childhoods were spent, you know, in these incredibly dangerous, tenuous circumstances where literally from day to day, we didn't know if our, I don't know, I, mean, I wouldn't be so dramatic to say we didn't know if we would be alive, but it's more like we didn't know if we would have food, if we didn't know if, uh, if things would be taken away from us. Uh, I mean, there were times where we were planning to leave the country where, you know, I, I distinctly remember my parents looking behind their backs thinking at some point this is going to all going to be taken away from us. I think even at some point when we were at the airport, you know, I, I, I remember feeling this communal dread that someone was going to pull us back and that even flying and arriving in Australia, it was all fake. It was all some sort of dream and that I would wake up and still be back in that dictatorship. I would still be back wondering if I would be going to school or if I would be sent elsewhere. This was uh, in Manila, Philippines, in 1980. By this point, I believe the Marcos regime had been in power for quite some time. Now, the interesting thing about my upbringing and my family is that we were actually heavily tied to that dictatorship. Um, Indeed, my grandmother, who was a very, very, very important figure in my life for a number of reasons, but probably one of the most important reasons was that she actually was the, I believe, the first campaign manager for Ferdinand Marcos um, back when he was still running for mayor and then eventually for governor. My parents worked a lot, a lot. I mean, they were, they've, I've, I've never actually known either of my parents to ever stay home. I, I certainly did not have a mother that stayed home and had a traditional role. Um, so my parents relied on my grandparents, my grandmothers specifically quite heavily. And for the first part of my life, um, it was primarily my father's mother. We re- refer to her as Lola Ipin, Lola being the Filipino word for grandmother. She was a force of nature. And my entire perspective of the Philippines and everything about my life in the Philippines basically revolved around her because her tiny little bouffant head was essentially the entire... It's funny, she was basically the microphone. Her hair actually looked like a microphone, um, like a little gray afro. It was very tightly curled. So um, so I grew up in... Uh, I mean, I, w- I would say we were never crazy rich, but we were comfortable. But I grew up definitely being made to acknowledge our privilege. You know, I come from a family that is very heavily invested in the political system. Um, My mother is a a daughter of um, a pretty 
wealthy set of landowners that have had had land um, passed down through her family from the Spanish, like for generations. Uh, my father's family um, came from the mountainous north northern region of the Philippines, where a lot of the, incidentally, the politicians and then eventually our dictator would come from. In fact, my father's um, uncle, um, I think one of my grandfather's first cousins or something like that, um, ended up becoming Marcus's financial advisor. And so having a Dumlao name associated, for better or for worse, with the dictator of a, com- a country like that um, afforded us with, I think, uh, a level of notoriety, but also some privileges, you know, like access to schools. But all this is to say is that, you know, I had a really, really, you know, fun little childhood in the Philippines. But it was always, I was always basically told that that level of comfort was somewhat um, fragile. I distinctly remember this one time I was, uh, you know, I was in our nice little family car and I turned to my right and there was a girl literally the same age as me, you know, selling, you know, chiclets um, with an old lady right behind her. And that was the point where my grandma, who was sitting next to me, puts her hand in my hand and basically proceeds to tell me how lucky I am and that I should never take anything for granted because, you know, if circumstances were different or if God deemed it so... Right. If our, if our blessings did not flow from him the way they had flowed, then that could have been me, that little girl on the other side of the window. So I do appreciate that about my family is that, you know, even though I went to a really, really good school, even though we lived in relative comfort, I was never ma- made to forget that there were people who suffered around us. Um, and then there was the time that I was taken out of my school to form what was essentially going to become a human shield against a bunch of men with machetes. So that story, <laughs> probably for me, one of the most vivid memories I will ever have as a child and probably the most formative memories I would have growing up with the Philippines. Um, so Marcus dictatorship, um, you know, they were rising to power at the same time. Um, you know, the people were certainly growing tired, I think, of, you know, the, of the abuses against them. Um, and there was... Um, a famous um, politician named Nino Aquino, who was about to become basically the next president. He was about to dethrone, you know, Marcos. And um, there was a famous moment in global television um, where Nino Aquino was um, assassinated on the tarmac, um, leaving his plane. All the news um, outlets that evening and that week and that month were basically just focused on, you know, the fact that this person who was supposed to deliver us from this uh, dictator he was suddenly assassinated in cold blood. What happened afterwards was that the, the country would then rally around uh, his wife, who was essentially a housewife, a very, very simple woman, um, or at least that's how the media told it. Later, she would be known as actually somewhat of a political, very, very cunning politician and very much an intellectual giant, actually, of her own. But at the time, you know, the story was is that she was a simple housewife in a yellow house dress, grieving for the loss of her now assassinated husband. There was a romantic element to that story that was very compelling um, to the Philippine people. And I found myself now being part of a family that, you know, through my father had strong ties with Marcos, but then through my mother had strong ideological ties, you know, to this woman. As a family, eventually would come to support Aquino. So much so that I believe it was shortly before the general election. I believe at that point, part of the military had already said that they would no longer support Marcos, but instead would rally around around Aquino, Cory Aquino. 
And there was a threat made, essentially, that the, the military that had not defected and the government that was still in power would essentially take care of the, the problem, take care of her in some way. What I remember is in the middle of the night, I would be taken out of my bed along with my little brother by both of my parents. They put us in the car and drove us not too far from the house, but definitely within our neighborhood. I distinctly remember being in the backseat of the car and driving towards, you know, this clearly was going to be one of the big houses. Then all of a sudden I started seeing tanks. I started seeing men with machine guns. I started seeing just a lot of activity. People lined up, the military lined up around this house. And then we were ushered into the gates. My parents took me out of the car. The next bit's all just a blur of activity. I just remember being told being being taken into a room and inside the room there were all these other kids there were all these children basically um some classmates that i recognized but all i just remember was like i was really sleepy and all of a sudden i'm in a room full of kids and the parents were like off to the side my parents were told to go inside this other room as they exited my room and entered the room that they were going into the next room i will never forget that at some point i remember the door opened wide enough for me to see this little woman in yellow, flooded in light. I would, did not know until years and years and years later, actually until, frankly, I started researching the history. And then even years after that, when the internet became a thing, like we're talking 10, 15 years later, when I was able to research what happened around that time, that I was basically part of a shield, if you will, um, voluntarily created by these parents who had supported um, this woman. And basically what she had said was, if you are going to come for me, you would have to come through the future of this country first. You would have to come through its children. There was a time in my life where, you know, growing up, there was not one day where we weren't at a rally I will never forget the day, the very jubilant day when, you know, the regime would fall and she would, you know, it was the, the famous people power. I mean, people, you know, a lot of political science historians, you know, um, would know about, you know, the people power movement of the Philippines, about how a, a people rose essentially to demand back you know, control of their government. And I'll never forget the day, you know, where we would all dress in yellow, the, the classic yellow color of the revolution, and we would sit on tanks put flowers on the tanks with these nuns and that was a way for us to basically pacify you know the military I mean, there's actually one of my favorite facebook photos um is one of me um you know with in you know holding hands with my mom who was holding hands with my dad and my little brother was perched on his shoulder and behind us is like a tank <laughs> you know and for me you know looking at back at that at that image of the philippines it's it's it, it just said so much you know it's it was growing up it was always a country of of great familial happiness. It was also a country that demonstrated that great happiness and great beauty only comes at the cost of great turmoil. My family was culturally Catholic and we'll observe the holidays, but we never went to Mass when I was growing up. Like on Sundays, my grandfather was perfectly fine with like watching the TV Mass. And it's like, this is good enough. You know, just put the Mass on TV. It's like, we don't have to go. And then it's like, 
if the TV mask was going long because the sermon you know was going long, it's like let's just change the channel. Let's put on the, the let's put on the politics show. And politics was more important to my family than than religion in many ways. And I got involved into like listening to those shows and I would be able to like argue with my uncles. Even though I was like an eight or a nine-year-old kid, I was very much aware of politics that were and were a very heated issue in Peru at the time. My parents didn't get to participate in a free political society until they were both adults. Basically, the entire time that they grew up, it had been a dictatorship. And actually, I still have the memory of my dad going to vote for president for the first time in 1980. I was five years old, and he's carrying me on his shoulders. And you have to like put your finger in like you know the little thing of indelible ink. And then the lady at um, that was the uh, the the prison captain was like, okay, and now the kid. And I had like I dipped my finger, and I was like a five year old with like the finger with indelible ink, and that was cool. Everybody was like ah, and that was the first election. a couple of friends that um, have called me because of all the articles and all the conversations that I start in Facebook with friends about political issues and gay issues and world issues. They call me a rabble rouser, and um, which I like. I enjoy. I enjoyed all the conversations that happen on my page because they remind me. And I think in a way, I'm like going back to what my grandparents used to do. Like my dad, my grandfather was the oldest brother, his family, and Every Sunday, all his brothers and sisters, they will get together and they will play cards and smoke cigarettes. And like, I remember sitting at the bottom of the table and listening to them, because they all belong to different political parties, argue the best of like each party or that party. And like, we had just, we had just passed this constitution on 79, like they were already breaking it. This is like the first president that we had had in 18 years. What? Now we're going to elect a second president. Well, actually, what we need is go back to like a military dictatorship because at least they got things done. No, we need to do this. We need to, and it was a constant argument about the best way to make the government work, and a constant argument of the, how to make best um, have freedoms reach to everybody. And now I get to do the same thing, just with like with all my friends. It's like it's a constant argument, and pretending that things are okay was never something that we did in my family we always assumed that there was something that needed to be fixed and that nothing was okay. And now that's what I do. I enjoy talking with my friends about everything. I enjoy picking at scabs. I enjoy like, well, this is awkward and this is complicated and this is a difficult issue. So let's talk about it. That's what I enjoy doing. Because to be honest with you, there was a time in both of our lives where we wouldn't have been able to talk about it or talking about it would have meant incarceration, deportation, in some cases even death. Well, it's 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 so funny. Daniel actually were talking about his parents and their perspective as Latin Trump supporters for one. And his parents, you know, sort of seeing Trump or what Trump represents as something that is really familiar because my parents didn't grow up in a democratic environment they didn't actually they didn't have a democratic elected president until way after i was born so they were already like fully formed adults i think my parents have always been a little bit uncomfortable with the rough and tumble of democracy 
So they like to have a leader that will make things happen. And the fact that now we have that kind of leader, my dad immediately gravitated to that because he was like, okay, this guy will make things happen and he will go to Congress and he will tell them what to do. So it was not about the interplay of the two branches of government. It was more about the president taking care of everybody. I will never forget this one conversation I had with my mom very early on um, where uh, it was still during the primaries. I think there were still three or four candidates on either side still left. You know, I mean, so it wasn't clear that it was going to be Trump that was going to be the candidate, let alone the president. Um, where my mom literally said, you know what, we came to this country, to America, to escape people like that. You know, they lament in many ways that it feels like we have come back, that that nightmare that we used to have of, you know, waking up and realizing that we never actually left has actually happened. We both talked about how it felt like it was happening in our home countries. So it's, it's, it's eerily and very dangerously familiar to us and to our families. You know, I think the biggest thing that they're really concerned about is the fact that, you know, the system that we came to love may be more fragile than they had originally sort of believed it to be. And I think if anything, that's, I think, what the rest of America, I think certainly a lot of immigrants like ourselves, um, we are reminded again about the fragility of freedom and the fragility of, of privilege and, and rights won. That, yes, we may defend them. Yes, we may expand upon them. We may, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do around them. But at the end of the day, there's just as many things fighting against it as they are fighting for them. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music was provided by Speria, Invisible Frequencies, Tony Yeeksi, Camille Baranski, Tyler Van Arsdale, and Ben Mitchell. The Status theme song is Bread and Circuses Are Back by the incredible Ben Mitchell. Status is a member of the Podglomerate, a brand new network of podcasts whose mission is to help people learn something new. Plus 7 Intelligence, a Podglomerate show about the human stories behind video gaming, just launched. And The Feast, which tells hidden stories about the food of the past, returns on August 4th. Status will be back for season two, and you can be the first to find out when it does if you sign up for the newsletter at statuspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to this first season of Status. It's been such a pleasure to bring it to you. Thank you.